0: We'll hear argument next in number 901150, Donald J. Willie versus Coastal Corporation.
1: Mr. Maness, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the second section of Article Three of the Constitution limits the judicial power of the United States to nine carefully defined kinds of cases and controversies and none others. The question presented in this case is whether the United States District Court violated that constitutional limitation by awarding attorney's fees to Coastal and the other defendants as a sanction for Mr. Willey's asserted bad-faith litigation. Even though the federal court never possessed Article III subject matter jurisdiction over the controversy, following the defendant's wrongful removal of the case from a state court, and even though Mr. Willey did not impede, obstruct, or delay the federal court's resolution of any jurisdictional question, but instead correctly and repeatedly and eventually successfully contested the federal court's unconstitutional exercise of the federal judicial power over the case. We believe that this case is controlled by the Court's decision in the United States Catholic Conference Against Abortion Rights Mobilization Incorporated, that the district court sanctions order violated Article 3, and that that order and the judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit mistakenly affirming it are unconstitutional and therefore should be reversed.
0: You, you, did you just refer, Mr. Minister, to, to a, one of our cases in saying that it was controlled by that case? Yes, sir. Oh, wh- what case was that?
1: United States Catholic Conference Against Abortion Rights Mobilization Incorporated. And w- w- when
0: when was it? Do you have a citation for that? Okay. Yes, Your Honor, I do. That. It's cited in our blue brief. Okay, thank you. That's fine. Thank you.
1: Uh, Catholic Conference was a 1988 decision of this court. I'd like to state very briefly and very quickly the relevant facts, which are, for the most part, entirely uncontradicted. Donald Willie worked as an in-house environmental attorney for a subsidiary of the Coastal Corporation in Houston from 1981 until 1984, when the company fired him. In 1985, represented by another Houston lawyer, George Young, Mr. Willie filed a state court lawsuit against Coastal and other defendants, alleging a number of exclusively state law causes of action. Principle one of these arose under a Texas Supreme Court decision, Sabine Pilot Service Company against Hauck, which recognizes a remedy in Texas for those whose employment is wrongly terminated solely because of their refusal to violate the law. Mr. Young's petition on Mr. Willey's behalf alleged that Coastal had fired him because of his refusal to falsify environmental reports or to participate in the company's ongoing violations of state and federal environmental laws at several of its facilities. Postal and the other defendants wrongly removed the case to the United States District Court in Houston on December 30, 1985, almost six years ago. They an Arguable basis for it. I think certainly the Court of Appeals felt that there was more than an arguable basis for the removal, uh, and characterized it as having been undertaken in good faith. Yeah. We don't, uh, Justice White, dispute that characterization. If
2: there weren't any uh, legitimate basis for removal, do you suppose the federal district court would have the power to sanction uh, the party removing the case wrongfully?
1: No, it would not. I think, Justice O'Connor, what is is implicit in this case and something I'd like to touch on... Even
2: under the court's inherent authority?
1: That's correct. Our view is that the court's Article III power over a case or controversy isn't determined by how clear or how difficult the jurisdictional question is. Our view is that the court either has the power to act under Article III of the Constitution or it does not. And if it does not have the power, then no complexity of the jurisdictional issue or no good faith or, for that matter, bad faith of either the parties or the judge can affect the outcome of the decision. Do you
2: think that would be true for uh, criminal Contempt sanctions for someone who uh, wrongfully removed a case, but then has an outburst in the courtroom and insults the judge, and the no. judge imposes a criminal sanction.
1: No, I think I think our position uh, straightforwardly draws a distinction between criminal contempt uh-huh. penalties. And
2: what is the Article Three power there? The articles.
1: Basically, it's that criminal contempt sanctions. Mm-hmm. implicitly or explicitly are cases that involve the United States, cases to which the United States' is a party are specifically mentioned in the second section of Article 3. And, of course, as I think the court... Well,
2: what if the United States were not a party, but there, it's a, a suit uh, between private parties and there's a wrongful removal and there's some outburst in court?
1: I think in those circumstances, Your Honor, the court would have a criminal contempt power Some kind
2: of inherent power to protect its own dignity.
1: I'm not sure, quite honestly, that it should be characterized as an inherent power, Mm -hmm. given the fact that since the Judiciary Act of 1789, there has always been a statute that authorizes federal courts to impose criminal contempt sanctions. The present statute, as Your Honor knows, is Title 18, Section 401. So it seems to me in the existing environment in which we operate, it's more appropriate to say in the event of such an outburst, that the federal court could punish it under the criminal contempt power conferred by Article 3, which Congress has implemented under Title 18, Section 401. Why do,
3: why, do, why do you choose to read that as applying to cases in which the court has jurisdiction and does not, has juris, does not have jurisdiction, both, whereas the other statutory authorities that, that exist you insist, must be interpreted to apply only to cases where the court has jurisdiction. I mean, they don't say that, but you say that's the only reasonable way to read them. Why, yes. Why, why, why is that reasonable for the civil but not for the criminal sanctions?
1: I think, I think perhaps the best way to answer that, if I can do it directly, is that that's the distinction that the mine workers' case draws. Uh, the mine workers' case holds that there is implicit uh, in this entire area a, a meaningful, principle distinction between vindications of judicial authority by criminal contempt sanctions and equivalent efforts to vindicate, in that instance, court orders uh, by civil contempt sanctions. It seems to me that that that's logical and makes a great deal of sense when one uh, undertakes to analyze what's at stake here. Uh, What's at stake is the the authority of the court, the ability to undertake the functions consigned to it by Congress in Article 3. Do you think
3: criminal sanctions, criminal contempt sanctions could have been imposed here if the court if the Court regarded what was being done as, uh, as contemptuous, as an obstruction of its
1: procedures? I think if the Court had reached that conclusion and it were supported by the evidence, and, of course, if Mr. Willie and Mr. Young had been accorded the procedural protections that criminal contempt implicates, yes, I think that, that would have been an instance in which criminal contempt sanctions would have been opposed. Mr.
0: Maness, uh, your, your opponent cites the case of Chico County Valley Drainage District, the opinion by Chief Justice Hughes. Uh, in which uh, the, the, uh, this court held that even though a grant of federal jurisdiction was unconstitutional, nonetheless a lot of consequences flowed from something having been acted on under that grant. Uh, what's your, How do you distinguish that
1: case? I think that case and such cases is stole against Godley. Uh, indicate clearly that notwithstanding the fundamental importance of the Article 3 power and the fact that a court in order to act has to have that power under both uh, Article 3 and uh, ordinarily a statutory grant of jurisdiction from Congress. But nonetheless, there are also countervailing considerations that sometimes can override that. And the example, of course, are race judicata, collateral estoppel, uh, similar sorts of administrative, uh, devices that are, that are simply uh, more important constitutionally than allowing, for example, absence of subject matter jurisdiction to be raised uh, long after the judgment is entered and long after the case has otherwise been closed. So, so
0: it isn't just a totally clear line between black and white. Uh, you, there, there has to be some evaluation of what the claim is.
1: I think so, but, but I'm troubled if, if uh, the court were to extend that uh, principle to going back to what I think was soundly repudiated in Catholic Conference, and that's the idea that there's something called colorable uh, jurisdiction. I was reviewing the transcript of the argument in Catholic Conference yesterday, and I recall the question coming up that the Court was was interested in knowing, what is colorable jurisdiction? And counsel for the parties were unable to, to define it, and then the question was asked, what did the Second Circuit mean when it used the term colorable jurisdiction? And I think there was still some question. I think the Court in Catholic Conference Decisively and soundly repudiated the idea that because a federal court looks like it has the constitutional power to act, that that's the functional equivalent of its having the constitutional power to act. I think we've also pointed out in our brief that there's an observation in Saysbo Foods, which was quoted in Cooter and Gell, a very important case that I'd like to turn to in a moment. Judge Easterbrook suggested that uh, if a district court uh, elects to proceed forward with the case and to Supervised discovery under Rule 16, and to conduct a trial, and to enter a judgment, and then discovers at the end that uh, the court doesn't have Article 3 subject matter jurisdiction. It can nonetheless uh, uh, treat any uh, uh, derelictions by counsel or the parties that occurs during that period as as appropriately sanctionable either under Rule 11 or under an inherent power. We think that's flatly mistaken. Uh, I had thought, since Capron against Van Norden, that jurisdictional issues have to be decided at the first of the case. Not at the end, and I have thought that at least since Turner against the President and the Directors of the Bank of North America, a case decided by this Court in 1799, that if it's a talk-up, if the judge says to herself, gee, I, I don't know whether I have jurisdiction or not, it's equally balanced, the presumption is the Court doesn't have jurisdiction and must promptly dismiss or remand the case. We've also pointed to some twelve decisions... Yes, what, if, <clears throat> what if the... Uh... <coughs> What if uh, the case uh,
4: goes up to the appellate court? There's never been a jurisdictional question raised, but the appellate court, the court of appeals, uh, like it should, uh, raises the jurisdictional issues and, and says says there's no jurisdiction. Never, never has been any jurisdiction in the lower court. I suppose that
1: uh, you would take the same position. Absolutely. I want to make it plain, Justice White, that that the fact that Mr. Willie and his counsel raised the absence of constitutional power from the get-go is just icing on the cake for us. Uh, the result would be exactly the same, even if they had never raised it, even if it had never been raised in the Court of Appeals, even if it had not even been raised in the petition for certiorari, but the Court had suddenly said, wait a minute, there's, there's no Article Three power.
3: Mr. Menes, you, you acknowledge <laughs> that this thing is not black and white and, and that, that sometimes uh, we, we allow consequences even though there's no jurisdiction. Why, why isn't a, a very logical line to draw and one that would put uh, the, uh, the Catholic bishop's case on the right side of the line... Uh, the line between the litigant who uh, submits himself to the, to the allegedly wrongful jurisdiction of the court, voluntarily goes ahead with litigation. In Catholic bishops, as I recall, it, it was contended f- from the outset by the Catholic bishops that the court had no part of them and had no jurisdiction over them. And, and we would not allow them to be punished by the court's uh, 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 content power. But where you come and, and Willingly litigate. Uh, why can't we treat that differently and 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 do no damage to the Catholic bishop's case?
1: Well, oddly enough, I attempted to, uh, all the way through to persuade both the district court and the court of appeals that that was a logical, logical and sensible. Because well, that's your your client is in that position. Exactly. But I also want to state that. All... Well,
3: you you went ahead with the litigation. You, you went ahead with the litigation and filed a whole batch oh, of I documents think. that were just just ridiculous. By, by, by well, I, I didn't.
1: I didn't do that. Right. My predecessor R- uh, Right. I'm sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but uh, the, the the point is, you did not stand on your refusal. You did not stand on your refusal. That's correct. Which the bishops did. They just refused to turn over the stuff. That's correct. And it so seems. To why me, can't I put you to that choice? It
1: seems to me, first of all, that 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 would entail Mr. Willie simply refusing to go forward. What? Uh, as I understand, he's, he's supposed to say, I'm so sure that the court lacks Article Three subject matter jurisdiction that I'm going to not do anything. I'm not going to, uh, to uh, prosecute the case. I'm not going to attend the first Rule 16 scheduling conference. I'm just going to go home. Um, Foreign
3: sovereigns do. They don't even show up. you so.
1: And I think, first of all, and, and I don't mean to be rhetorical when I say this, but I think it's an answer to your question, is where do you find that in the Constitution? It seems to me that the Constitution both simultaneously extends the judicial power in the second section of Article Three and limits it. And if this,
3: so I don't find the gray in the Constitution. I only find the black and the white in the Constitution. We've passed that. Once you acknowledge that there are some grays, we're just we're just arguing over over whether this gray, is one of yeah.
4: one of the shades of shades of gray permitted. Per that's exactly. all.
1: but it seems to me that's an unworkable and untenable uh,
4: distinction. Well, you, you you would also I suppose say that that the uh, if people are uh, a lot of times litigate over jurisdiction. Certainly. And. Uh, if it turns out uh, that the court doesn 't have any jurisdiction, uh, is the court without power to to sanction attorneys who uh, who uh, uh, who should be sanctioned uh, in litigating jurisdiction
1: no, first of all we 've made it i think clear in, in light of the court 's decision in Catholic conference that interferences with or obstructions of jurisdictional determinations are as sanctionable as any other case in which the court well,
4: does't know have but uh, I would think you 're uh, I would think if you accept that, you have to accept some some other things.
1: Well, we've we've certainly conceded that in terms of uh, when we talk of sanctions, this case involves an award of attorney's fees as a sanction. But we've conceded and indeed maintained that misconduct by an attorney dur- or
4: a litigant. Well, you, you you concede then that courts have jurisdiction to cons- to uh, determine their own jurisdiction. Absolutely. Well, in this district court. Uh, Thought it had jurisdiction and determined it, and and there there you were and you were stuck until you got to the court
1: of appeals. I I saw that thought uh, Justice White expressed in the transcript of the argument in uh, in uh, Catholic Conference. And and all I can say is, uh, as I understand the Constitution, it is that the court, at the time it entertains the suit from the very beginning either has the jurisdiction or it doesn't, and if it mistakenly thinks it does but really doesn't, it doesn't somehow, by virtue of having made that mistake, empower itself to act. Uh, This is certainly a very strange constitutional power for which Coastal contends. It's one that can only be exercised if the district court has booted the jurisdictional determination. And and you don't think (laughs) that the attorney could have been held in contempt? Oh, yes I do, absolutely. Oh. If, in fact, the attorney's conduct was criminally contumacious. I didn't say criminal. Civil contempt? Yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't say that civil contempt sanctions were uh, imposable on the basis of the mine workers' uh, principle. And, uh, but, but criminal? Criminal contempt could be, yes. That is assuming that uh, sanctions were imposed in accordance with Federal Criminal Rule 41. But no, I but you argument. That- okay. Oh, I'm sorry, Please
5: i was just going to say, do you think the sanctions here are more akin to criminal
1: or civil? I think the court has already answered that question in in Chambers against NASCO uh, last June when it quoted Hutto against Finney and said that they're more equivalent to civil uh, uh, penalties rather than criminal. And if they're more equivalent to to criminal penalties, why aren't they in the federal criminal rules? Why don't we have a a federal criminal rule 11A uh, that authorizes the imposition of uh, something equivalent to or functionally equivalent to criminal contempt penalties uh, via amended Rule 11A that would award attorney's fees perhaps as a fine. We've also pointed out in our brief that, that uh, apart from the fact that Mr. Willie and Mr. Young weren't accorded any of the procedural protections that a criminal prosecution for criminal contempt would entail, uh, if this, these sanctions are like criminal contempt, then Coastal's counsel should not be here, because interested parties under Young against Vuitton can't prosecute a criminal contempt proceeding. And indeed, if uh, under Providence Journal, uh, Mr. Beatty couldn't be here, but we should have General Starr instead. And I suggest that General Starr would not touch this case with a, uh, with a 10-foot pole.
6: Your position is that if in Catholic conference the bishops, uh, in addition to contesting jurisdiction, filed uh, uh, fraudulent and misleading uh, documents purportedly uh, in response to the subpoena, the only uh, sanction available to the court is a criminal sanction?
1: No the lawyers responsible for that misconduct would be sanctionable uh, by suspension or disbarment. Uh, But not
6: under Rule 11?
1: uh, Not under Rule 11. And the reason I suggest that that must be true, and I I say must as if it's an inevitable consequence, and I know it is not, uh, is is the alternative argument that Coastal makes that says basically that the court, apart from the inherent power argument, uh, has power under Rule 11, even in the absence uh, of subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, I've, I've read Catholic. Uh, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't,
6: don't lawyers have a special obligation under Rule Certainly. 11, quite, quite without reference to jurisdiction?
1: Certainly. I, I, I believe that Rule 11, as Cooter and Gell explain, entails uh, a very significant obligation for lawyers who sign pleading. In, in this
6: case, uh, were the lawyers and the client both sanctioned?
1: Yes. One lawyer, one client.
6: Uh, so do you take the position that the lawyer can be sanctioned?
1: Certainly, the lawyer could have been suspended or disbarred, assuming he was
6: But he could be sanctioned under Rule 11.
1: No, not in the absence of Article 3 subject matter jurisdiction. And, and in fact... No, that's but
6: disbarment is not a criminal penalty.
1: Certainly it's not. But it also doesn't involve the adjudication of a case or controversy that's not within the second section of Article 3, either.
6: Well, I'm, I'm not sure that it doesn't <laughs> if, the, if, if the unprofessional conduct takes place in the course of the proceeding.
1: Uh-huh. Well... Conceivably, arguably it is, but at least it's an alternative remedy, an alternative mechanism that the, co- that the court can use, uh, apart from awarding attorney's fees to the people who've wrongly invoked its jurisdiction. Because it's,
6: it's, it seems to me here that the, the gravamen of, of the injury to the court was the misfeasance uh, of the attorney. Yes. And the court has a, a special authority over attorneys under Rule 11, and it, it seems to me that uh, that quite distinguishes this case from Catholic Conference.
1: And, of course, I, I don't represent the attorney. I represent the litigant, who was also himself an attorney and who presumably the court of well,
6: That leads to the next point. Uh, isn't uh, the litigant's uh, liability derivative of the attorney, in a sense?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I guess there's an argument to be made that when the litigant is herself or himself an attorney, uh, that the the attorney litigant should be held to a higher standard than. Was
6: there a, f- a finding here that the, uh, the client uh, conspired uh, with, with the attorney uh, uh, or was it an accessory uh, with the attorney in, in the uh, perpetration of, of, of the violation?
1: There was no specific finding of that. I'd no take sp- it's implicit. I certainly think that's true. In fact, so implicit that both the District Court and the Court of Appeals used the technique in their order and opinion of saying plaintiff or "Willie" when they actually were referring to actions that had occurred and that the record <coughs> revealed were undertaken by Mr. Young, uh, the attorney.
6: Because the whole point of Rule 11 is to control the conduct of attorneys.
1: Exactly. But, of course, the whole point of Article 3 is to restrain excessive uses of judicial power when the Constitution limits the judiciary as it does the political branch. Yes,
6: but it seems to me that the point of the sanction against your client is to discourage him and others from permitting their attorneys to uh, engage in this sort of conduct.
1: I think that's certainly true. Uh,
7: don't, don't you have to take it then the further step that the object of doing that is essentially to protect the other party? And by the same reasoning that, that we, we accept uh, the, the Court's authority to impose criminal consent sanctions for the purpose of protecting the Court, uh, why doesn't this essentially the same reasoning uh, extend to allowing these civil sanctions, whether it be under Rule 11 or inherent power, to protect the other parties once they are accepted by the Court as being before it?
1: I think, I think Justice Souter, that that, that that argument and that reasoning could in fact be used in this case if the court were prepared to say that exigency and necessity are a substitute for the Article 3 judicial power. What have we said in
7: criminal contempt?
1: Well, I think I think you've, uh, and I may be mistaken here, I think the court has said in, in the mine workers' case that the court in that case did have the Article 3 judicial power. It was a case to which the United States was a party. It was a case in which the court was entertaining a federal question. It was some very real question as to whether or not the court had the, the authority to... To impose a specific remedy, the injunction.
7: But don't you don't you concede? I mean, you have conceded in this case uh, that there would be a criminal contempt power. I've
1: conceded, Your Honour, that, that conceivably, if the evidence were sufficient to to overcome the presumption of innocence, for example, that Mr. Woolley would have enjoyed had he known that, that he were going to be
7: accused of criminal. But, I mean, right. But I mean, that essentially goes to uh, to, yes. to the factual basis for the action, as opposed to the jurisdiction yes. of the court to to uh, engage in it and and why why doesn't the protective justification for that concession go as far as as conceding the the issue here as well
1: because at least since what Michelson and I suspect probably in a number of other criminal contempt proceedings the court has said that criminal contempt even if it arises in a civil lawsuit is a separate case it's it's a different proceeding it it ...is designed not to adjudicate the rights of the parties, but to vindicate the authority of the
7: court. I, I don't want to be impatient, but, I mean, that's kind of the analytical structure of the court's answer. But the ultimate reason for engaging in that kind of analytical exercise was a protective reason, wasn't it? Certainly. Uh, and and why doesn't the same protective reason uh, argue just as persuasively here?
1: Because, Justice Tudor, if, if the court were to accept that reason... It would essentially be saying that even in the absence of Article III subject matter jurisdiction, a United States district court that mistakenly undertakes to hear and decide a case over which it lacks the judicial power, nonetheless has a form of judicial power. Now,
7: I've and and isn't 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 one rationale for that that although the court may lack Article III ju- uh, subject matter jurisdiction as finally adjudicated. The court has an Article III obligation to the parties before it while they are before it, uh, and isn't isn't that sufficient? Yes, but the
1: answer I think is the parties should not be before the court if it lacks Article III subject matter jurisdiction. They should be dismissed. You want a rule?
2: Yes, I'm. i right. asking. I'm asking yeah. the
1: court to hold uh, district judges as accountable as we are under Rule 11. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
4: I suppose you uh, think personal jurisdiction is another matter?
1: Yes, absolutely, under uh, Insurance Corporation of Ireland.
4: Well, what if, uh, what if the, reason you, what if the uh, reason you don't have personal jurisdiction is
1: because the Constitution forbids it? Well, I think that then would presumably implicate Article Three subject matter jurisdiction and would be in our case then. So,
4: so if, uh, if some court is wrong in thinking it has long-arm jurisdiction, uh, uh, and wrong because, because the Constitution says it's wrong. Then you would make
1: this, be making the same argument. I don't think so, because Insurance Corporation of Ireland draws a very clear line between personal uh, jurisdiction that can be, for example, uh, established by Rule 37 sanctions and Article 3 subject matter jurisdiction. Before I reserve, with the Court's permission, a few moments for rebuttal, I'd like to suggest that Cooter and Gell, which is the pin of Coastal's argument, really doesn't control this case. It's not a constitutional decision. The court wasn't confronted with an Article III issue in that case. And perhaps most significantly, the court in Cooter and Gell specifically adverted to the district court's Article III subject matter jurisdiction as the source of its authority, both for considering the merits of the case and for imposing the sanctions. With the court's permission, I will reserve just a few moments.
0: Very well, Mr. Manas. Uh, Mr. Beatty, is it
8: Beatty or Beatty? Beatty. Mr. Beatty. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Just as opposing counsel has already acknowledged, there are two bases upon which we believe that the Court had jurisdiction in this case. The first is the inherent power, and the manifestations of that inherent power represent both the inherent power to police proceedings as well as the inherent power to determine jurisdiction. As a separate and independent basis, however, we suggest to the Court that the necessary and proper cause— through which the Rules Enabling Act was passed and Rule 11 was promulgated, also provides a sufficient constitutional basis, which is the question presented. What is the constitutional basis for Rule 11 sanctions in this case? Now, opposing counsel is willing to concede that inherent power certainly exists. Inherent power exists outside of Article 3, Section 2, Subject Matter Jurisdiction. And once this concession is made, it becomes extremely difficult, indeed I would suggest impossible, to reconcile the position of the uh, petitioner in this case. Except for,
3: except for the Catholic Conference of Bishops case. Uh, why wouldn't that have come out the other way if, uh, if this inherent power that you argue for uh, exists in this context?
8: What we had in Catholic Conference was a situation in which, in which the bishops did exactly what Mr. Willie could have done. The bishops had a situation where they were held in civil contempt. They then sought an immediate interlocutory (laughs) appeal, and they said, we are not going to participate in this proceeding any longer because we believe that you do not have jurisdiction in the underlying case, and as a result, we must respectfully decline to tender any documents or to honor the subpoena. As a result, that case went up. Justice Stevens has already pointed out, if the Catholic bishops' attorneys had said, We believe that there is no jurisdiction, but we want to brief the issue on the merits. We'd like to to address the merits of this case. And in the context of that, what they did was they cited misleading citations, rules of evidence that didn't exist, uh, tendered documents to the court with affidavits that were wholly inadequate to establish them, 1,200 pages, and said, oh, and read this, by the way. Uh, Then I'd I'd submit that, that Catholic Conference would say, first of all, this was a civil contempt matter, and what happens is there's no jurisdiction, but the court will retain jurisdiction on the Rule 11 issue and will sanction and should sanction attorneys when their misbehavior reaches... So, so
3: you would draw the line between standing on your rights and refusing to proceed further, and that cannot be the subject of a sanction, but if you do proceed, even, even while protesting all the time, that there's no jurisdiction, then, you, then you're subject.
8: Certainly. I, I, I think... I, I was trying... I'm trying to go through all the hypotheticals that I could imagine in my well, mind. I would instead have... of a
5: hypothetical, what about this very case? What is the plaintiff supposed to do? The plaintiff had filed the lawsuit in a state court Got removed to the federal court. If he says, I won't go ahead, he goes ahead and files another lawsuit in the state court, gets removed again. Can he, how, how's he ever going to get his, his rights vindicated if he keeps getting removed to the federal court?
8: Well, the short answer, Your Honor, is that he can behave. That is what he... Well, does. of
5: course, but, the, but, the, but, but I don't see how your line works in this case. If, he, if there's no contempt, you've got no problem. and You can also punish him by a criminal contempt. Your opponent agrees to that. But but I don't understand the line you draw as applied to this fact situation.
8: I'm sorry, perhaps I didn't understand your fact situation. If what happened is there was a removal, and he believed that there was not appropriate subject matter jurisdiction in the case, and he simply refused to respond, then what would happen is a judgment would be entered against him, and he would then have the opportunity to appeal the lack of subject matter jurisdiction to the Fifth Circuit.
5: Oh, I see. You're, but he's not in effect. He continues, he litigates the jurisdictional issue.
8: Certainly he litigates the jurisdictional issue because it's even conceded by Petitioner that the federal court has the jurisdiction to determine jurisdiction. He can't escape that fact, and he would willingly submit to that. And he would also say, I would behave in that circumstance, so he has a well, choice. But did opinion. he do
5: any more than contest the ju- jurisdictional issue in this case?
8: Certainly, Your Honor. Absolutely he I mean, did. He did a lot what, happened, what happened after the case, after the, the motion to remand was denied... A motion to dismiss was filed, and a motion for partial summary judgment was filed by Willie, by the petitioner in this case. A motion for partial summary judgment on the merits. What then happened was misleading citations, which were discussed in the brief as though the omitted portion uh, was not omitted. What happened was citations to rules of evidence that did not exist. All of those happened in the context of the motion for summary but, judgment. But just be sure I get the procedure, you're
5: suggesting he had to take a, an adverse judgment on the merits and then appeal the jurisdiction, because okay. he couldn't have appealed the, the No,
8: he merit. did have, again, he did have that one other alternative. It's a dichotomy, I agree. One is that he could say, I'll take a, I'll take a judgment against me and appeal jurisdiction. The other thing he could do is say, I will litigate the merits and I'll behave. Oh,
5: right, right, right.
8: I, I hope and I would submit that that's not a hard, that, that shouldn't be that difficult a choice for a litigant to take.
5: Well, it's a little different choice, though, than the choice of the subpoenaed party in the Catholic bishop case. That's the point. Yes,
8: I'm yes, um, I would concur. And, and as a result, what happens is once, once we begin to say that there is inherent power, both to determine jurisdiction and inherent power that exists within the court to police its own proceedings, then there must be the ability to sanction someone who does the kind of activity which is at stake in this particular case. Really, as a constitutional matter, the only things that petitioner can raise is the fact that somehow attorney's fees might not be applicable, and yet that argument has been rejected. The Court has held that attorney's fees certainly can be imposed, either under Rule 11 or under the Court's inherent power.
2: Our, our cases in uh, chambers against Nasco and Hutto against Feeney suggest that um, fee shifting sanctions are analogous to civil um, contempt, and perhaps that answers the question.
8: If, if I might, Your Honor, it addressed both that issue of Hutto versus Feeney as well as the, the issue of, of uh, attorneys' fee shifting. Mm-hmm. It's pointed out both in the majority by Justice White uh, that the reason that fee shifting uh, is, is, is of concern is because of concern for the American rule. And I submit that that is not a constitutional impediment. That is, a court, a court could uh, take acts further. The court has just elected to stop short of that and, and say, on fee shifting, we're going to honor what we believe, what what Justice Scalia referred to in his dissent as deeply rooted history and congressional policy. And so for that reason, there is a a slight rub, but it's not a constitutional rub at the attorney's fee level. And then with regard to Hutto versus Feeney, if you look at that, recall that that case was the prison case dealing with a situation in Arkansas in which Arkansas had repeatedly been told, please take action. It was more than an exhortation of please, it was a take action. And that that had not been done in order to clarify, the, in order to remedy the problems in their prison system. And therefore, the court imposed a $20,000 attorney's fee sanction, but said in that case, we hope that will incline them to behave in the future. And, 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 uh, and, and hope that that they and that was civil contempt here. And, and I would refer to your decisions over and over in business guides, as well as your decision in uh, Cooter and, and Gell.
2: I don't think they help you because uh, there there was Article Three uh, jurisdiction at one point in those cases. I don't see how that helps you.
8: I, I don't raise it for that position. I raise it for the position that it was repeatedly said: Rule Eleven sanctions are designed to punish. Rule Eleven sanctions are designed to deter misconduct. Rule 11 sanctions are designed to curb abuses of the judicial process. It's the language that's used. And therefore, in Cooter and Gale you can get the result where even though the case was dismissed and no longer present before the court, the court could say, I nonetheless wish to sanction this conduct because that's not the kind of behavior we wish to condone. Just as in this case, either through the inherent power or through the use of Rule 11 sanctions, the court should be able to say exactly the same thing. You may certainly contest jurisdiction if you wish. You may be here and contest the merits if you wish to do that. But the one thing the court has a right to demand of all litigants is that they follow the rules. If I might, simply because it would appear that from an attorney's fee standpoint, there certainly is not a problem, a constitutional limitation, I would submit also that there is not a problem with regard to the inherent power operating outside of, of Article 3, Section 2. I, Gompers is an example of that situation, albeit Gompers was a situation in which criminal contempt was ultimately used as the sanction. In Gompers v. Buckstove, what happened was, After the case had been litigated but was on appeal, there was a settlement. As a result, the court noted in its last paragraph, this case is now moot, but said we retain jurisdiction in order to see whether or not there was a contempt which should be punished. And it's because of that the court's ability to go back and look and punish activities which does take place within the court's proper and justiciable sphere.
5: No, but your argument on punishment, I'm not sure he disagrees with. It's the, it's the distinction he emphasized from United Mine Workers between civil and criminal.
8: But, but uh, rule, I, I understand that. Rule 11 is not is, uh, is more like, and I think, think that's the best way like to criminal. describe it. It's more like criminal. But, um, but, but,
5: but wait a minute on that. Just two, two questions. One, are the procedures adequate for criminal contempt? And secondly, who gets the money? Does, the, does it paid into court or paid to the opposite party?
8: Uh, it is in Rule 11. In this situation, it is paid to the opposite party. Is that party. typical of criminal situations? In, in, in a criminal contempt situation, it might be, but normally is not done. And certainly, there are additional constitutional safeguards. However, in the inherent in the use of the inherent power, what has happened? And I, I'd like to quote, if I might, Justice White, when he when he refers in, in uh, Chambers versus Nasco to the parties and to Hutto, he says, "The imposition of sanctions in this instance." transcends a court's equitable power concerning relations between the parties and reaches a court's inherent power to police itself, thus serving the dual purpose of vindicating judicial authority without resort to the more drastic sanction available for contempt of court and making the prevailing party whole for expenses caused by his opponent's obstinacy. Thus, the inherent power, as noted in the majority opinion, gave the court the opportunity to do something less than criminal contempt.
5: But have we ever described that kind of inherent power in a case over which the court has no jurisdiction?
8: Uh, the court has not has not dealt with this particular situation before. No. Inherent power in this particular situation. Inherent power
5: when we've is. got no power at all. I beg your pardon? Inherent power when we have no power at all. No, no, sort but, of a, oh, but, no, we but... We have power to... Uh, the criminal contempt power, that's easy, that's settled, and so forth. But is there any case – do you have any case that's really held that that uh, in a case of where there's no jurisdiction you can impose a sanction on an adverse party but to pay to the – you know, to pay to your opponent in the litigation? No, I, we do,
8: I cannot cite against
5: Finney, and I'm, I may be, may, may be fuzzy about it, but that was a, really a statutory case. They were, that was enforcement of the civil rights uh, – Attorney's Fee Award Act.
8: Right? Yes, but the argument that was raised was a Rule 11 case because it was in Ar- Arkansas was arguing that there couldn't be an imposition of attorney's fees against them because it would interfere as a, as, as with their position as yes, the state.
5: The 11th Amendment
8: Act. yes Yes. Yeah, but that wasn't the sole ground for rejecting that. So no. I, I, I apologize. That's the reason this case is here. But but once you say that the court has this inherent power to govern proceedings, let me, for example, turn to, to jurisdiction to determine jurisdiction. If what happens is... Uh, Let's assume, just by way of assumption, that what happens is that you have an environmental case in which a standing issue is raised regarding someone in Sri Lanka. Um, It could be entirely possible that that case could be litigated a significant way down the road without having a jurisdictional determination made. Indeed, it could be possible that the jurisdictional circumstance could change. For example, the litigant could die. The case could thereby become moot. We couldn't even solve the problem by overruling Catlin versus United States and saying, before anything else will happen, before anything else will happen, we must make certain that we have subject matter jurisdiction. You'd take the case from the District Court to the Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court, and then you'd say you have jurisdiction, go back to the District Court. It can be raised at any time. It may well happen that circumstances change such that all of a sudden the Court is divested of jurisdiction, And what the argument of Petitioner seems to suggest is that during that entire preceding period, there would be no opportunity to impose Rule 11 sanctions on a litigant in the case. And that's what's so troublesome.
5: I I, I come here... Of course, we got along without Rule 11 for a long time, so that wouldn't be the end of the world. Well... your honor i i and the question
3: is 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 really that whether whether it isn't enough to protect the court's uh, integrity uh against these assaults to to have the criminal sanctions available which you you call you you call the rule 11 lesser sanctions but in in one respect they are they're greater you don't have the kind of safeguards the kind of protections and i think that the the continuity uh, can, can, be, uh, can be less, probably, uh, under Rule 11 than, than is needed for criminal sanctions.
8: The importance of the case I don't underestimate. However, it's important to note, remember, that the 1983 amendments indicated that what happened was that, that they, needed a, they needed to change the sanctions in order, for example, to establish an objective test as opposed to a subjective test. The advisor said, we need to be able to get at this conduct. I come to you as a person who practices primarily in front of the district courts. We all know the problems that are existing down there. I would suggest that even though we may have gotten along well for 200 years, primarily we've gotten along well for 200 years because people have obeyed the rules and do believe that Rule 11 would apply. Indeed, that's what the majority of the lower courts have always suggested is that the rules would apply. Certainly the plain language of the rule applies and no one argues with this. The rules apply in every case, and this is the judicial standard that has always been used, utilized, which is you look at the plain language of the rule, and no one questions that it applies in all civil cases. It implies, applies by Rule 81C in all cases which are removed.
5: Yes, but counsel, you're talking about the relatively narrow category of cases, and they really are very, they're they're a fair number, but they're comparatively small, in which it turns out there was no jurisdiction to start with. And, a, and a, a, defeating your position would, in, in effect, impose on lawyers a very careful obligation to be darn sure about jurisdiction before they file Rule 11 motions or anything else. And your client booted it on that
8: issue. Well, it, <laughs> of course, my, my suggestion with regard to my client is that, and, and I've had, we've had a couple of cases come up like this. You get up, and all of a sudden the Supreme Court makes a decision like Merrill Dow, and all of a sudden everybody says, whoops, let's go back and look at subject matter jurisdiction. Or, for example, Yeah, but that isn't this kind
5: of case. <coughs> that isn't this case.
8: Well, this is this case. This is what happened on the jurisdictional issue, is that Merrill Dow was dispositive ultimately at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on the jurisdictional issue. It, it's also true Cardin versus Arcoma Associates. I mean, these are things where all of a sudden we're, we're questioning whether or not uh, uh, limited partnerships uh, can meet this, the diversity uh, jurisdiction. Parties litigate and go through the process and then all of a sudden find out that what they were doing was not proper. But that doesn't mean that litigants shouldn't behave once they're in front of the courtroom and in the courtroom once these issues have been decided and can properly be brought up on appeal. All we're asking is that Rule 11 sanctions be available so that people will behave. As a constitutional matter... Certainly a reasonable position. Maybe there should be a statute like that. Well, but my, my argument, of course, would be that there, is a, that there is the equivalent of a statute on that. What we have is we have the Necessary and Proper Clause as a constitutional issue. What we secondly have is we have the Rules Enabling Act, and certainly 2072B says it shall not abridge, enlarge, or modify substantive rights. But here I want to emphasize that Mr. Willie's substantive rights are absolutely intact. His case on the merits proceeds in the district courts of the state of Texas today. It has not been affected one iota, unlike many of the other cases in which we're looking at procedural rules and we're asking about the impact on a litigant and he may well lose his case on the merits as a result of the impact of the federal rules. Here there has been no impact whatsoever. And again, that would point out the point that I, what I think is a very important issue, which is it would seem that either from the standpoint of separation of powers or from the standpoint of federalism that there's not a competing interest on the other side. Wouldn't that
3: argument about, you know, the federal rules don't, uh, uh, don't, don't affect substantive rights, wouldn't that have, uh, again, produced a different result in the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops case? I mean, that, that's what, what stands between you and what you want to do, it seems to me. That case comes out differently if if we accept your argument.
8: No, Your Honor, again, and and frankly because I accept the argument that you have already, the distinguishing factor that you already make, which is that that was a civil contempt case by a non-party who all of a sudden, who had that right, that immediate right of an interlocutory appeal, and he was able to bring that up. Here what we have is we have the court consistently said we don't want to have piecemeal litigation. Catlin versus United States says raise your jurisdictional issue, let's go through and litigate the merits and take it on up. My
3: only point is that distinction is not in Rule 11. If, if you're going the constitutional route, if you're going an inherent power route, I think you can, you can make that distinction, but I'm not sure that you can make it in Rule 11.
8: Well, Your Honor... If your
3: argument is no substantive rights are affected, Rule 11 simply covers this, it's an easy case, then, then Catholic bishops was a hard case, and we got it wrong.
8: Well, except, Your Honor, to the extent that you say that the rules, the rules themselves recognize the jurisdiction of a court through its inherent power. If what happens, all that, do, all that does is that just circles back. If what happens is the rules apply where the courts have jurisdiction, and the courts have jurisdiction everywhere under Article 3, Section 2.
3: That's all you mean by your Rule 11 argument? It just falls back onto the constitutional inherent power argument then? Sure. Okay. But, Your Honor... It doesn't Honor, get you very far. Let's just talk about inherent power then. I am Forget sure. about Rule 11.
8: <laughs> except, except, Your Honor, Except, Your Honor, the thing that is important to note there is that the question presented for the court is a constitutional one. And the, it, the issue is, would the necessary and proper clause support the, the, the legislature, the Congress in this instance, passing legislation which could get at this, at, at this type of behavior? And the answer is yes. And, and that's, that's the reason I, I, I say that there are two separate independent constitutional bases for this.
6: Was the bishop's case a constitutional case, in your view?
8: No, No, Your Honor. Uh, look, look, look. Let me finally conclude that it, it would seem to me that, that one ultimately has to come out with, yes, there is inherent power. Uh, yes, that inherent power may well be shaped not only by Congress, but the inherent power is reserved to the courts, and the courts have used that since the beginning of the Republic. Either of those constitutionally should support the sanction of Rule 11 in this case. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Beatty. Uh, Mr. Manus, you have
1: three minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice court stated in catholic conference that a court's a federal district court's subpoena power under federal civil rule 45 cannot be greater than its article 3 subject matter jurisdiction i suggest exactly the same principle compels the holding that a court's sanctioning power under rule 11 cannot be greater than its article 3 subject matter jurisdiction i would have thought at least since siback against wilson and company and in light of the express provisions of federal rule 82 that this isn't a Rule 11 case because Rule 11 can't enlarge the jurisdiction of the Federal District Court, and we're talking here about jurisdiction in a most fundamental sense, the power of a court to do something. Uh, another distinction, and I think it's crucial, uh, crucial in light of uh, uh, the discussions we've had this morning, is that in Catholic Conference the uh, civil contempt sanctions were imposed against a non-party and therefore were immediately appealable. Uh, in this case, by contrast, we were stuck to the flypaper. And conceivably, if the district court had not granted Coastal's motion to dismiss, we might have been in the federal district court much longer than we were. Finally, I'd like to leave the court with this hypothetical. We, what makes Coastal's arguments somewhat compelling is the assumption, and I think it's an appropriate assumption, that the district court acted in good faith. But suppose the district court acted in bad faith. Suppose from the beginning it had said, look, I realize I don't have Article III subject matter jurisdiction, but I've got to decide this case anyway. It presents a very important question of state law. And if, if I leave it to the state courts, they're probably going to botch it. Uh, Is it conceivably arguable then if the district court proceeds to hear and decide the case over a period of years, the court could then attempt to award attorney's fees to the parties wrongly removing the case? And if the court's going to draw a distinction between good faith exercises of colorable Article III power and bad faith exercises, then it's right back where it was at the Catholic Conference. And seven members of the court, uh, seven members of the present court rejected that argument uh, fairly conclusively and fairly persuasively. We think the federal judicial power under Article III doesn't depend on subjective mental processes of judges or litigants. It depends upon the Constitution of the United States. The sanctions order in this case violated the second section of Article III. It should be reversed.
0: Thank you, Mr. Maynes. The case is submitted.